Welcome back to WeCast. I'm your host, Brock Benson. I want to thank everybody for your kindness and gestures of support as we embark on this new endeavor of bringing the local news to you in this new audio format. We are still experimenting with the approach, but the hard part is over. The podcast is live on our streaming platforms. Now we just need to make improvements to keep it interesting. For example, the intro music that you are about to hear was improvised and performed by our own local musician who goes by the name of Johnny Dobbs. You'll be getting to know Johnny much better in the future as he is the guest on the next WeCast Colorado. I had him in the studio a few months ago and asked him if he'd just give me some riffs to help enrich the overall sound of the podcast. And here we go. From the Trailhead Sound Lab in Natarita, Colorado, this is a 141 production in cooperation with the Rimrocker Historical Society and now the San Miguel Basin Forum and in conjunction with WeCast Colorado. This is volume 74, issue number 19 of the San Miguel Basin Forum, bringing you all the news from the west end of Colorado for the week of October 11th, 2023. The price of uranium as of October 2 is $72.75. All right, in the headlines today, we have an education story. School construction in Final Push, on target by Reagan Tuttle, editor. The new school in Nucleus is in the final push, and Superintendent of the West End Public Schools, Clint Waitolka, said everything seems to be on track for the move over the winter break. We are still on schedule to occupy in January, he said over the weekend. According to the board's construction update, there have been a few changes to the plans, and those changes have required additional costs. There were two new additional basketball goals added to the plans with 8-inch rims. Those are for the upper playground area and will cost $4,398. Also, the board has to account for the revised gym logo on the wall mats and also the striping. The revisions add up to $21,350. To date, construction process has been smooth and uneventful. FCI remains the lead contractor. FCI continues to manage and maintain a safe, efficient, and organized job site. There have been no issues or interference with the school operations so far this year, the board stated in its October construction notes. The following subcontractors completed work in the last month, some local and some regional. H&H Signs, Floor Shield, All City Flooring, Grady's Kitchen Equipment, Advanced Contracting, Highline Roofing, Reliance Precast, Eagle Valley Glass, Durango Paint, Ridge Electric, 2H Mechanical, Straight Edge Striping, Asphalt Specialists, TKE Elevator, Powers Products, Colorado Floor Works, 579 Construction, IMS Masonry, McKinney Door, Delta Cabinets, and West End Mechanical. The contract sum is currently $37,096,692.97 for the new school. Local spending due to the project and within a 40-mile radius for the last month has totaled $82,517. Approximately 46% of that was spent at local businesses, while 18% went to local subcontractors and another 18% went to meal purchases at food businesses in the area. Another 15% was spent on fuel, with 3% spent on hotels and rental housing. As far as the schedule goes, the contractors are now working on the rough site grading at the upper sidewalks and playgrounds, and the paint and drywall are still ongoing, as is exterior siding and trim. The wall tile and flooring are also being finished, as is the trim in the mechanical room. The kitchen equipment will be installed very soon, and some ceiling tiles need to go in there. Additionally, there are hollow metal doors on the list to be installed in a few different spots, along with the corresponding hardware. That is what they are still working on, Waitolka said, of the aforementioned items of the board's construction task list. There are no new items to permit at this time, but third-party testing of materials is taking place. Yay and Associates is working on that portion 
Foothills Environmental is working as the environmental consultant, and Group 14 is handling the sustainability consultation. Elementary school principal Sarah Bray is enthusiastic. I'm very excited for the move to the new school, she told the forum. From the new security to the new facility, we are ready for this change. It will be wonderful to have our entire district in one building so we can all utilize each other's strengths to best support all these students. SMPA considers raising access charge, special to the forum. It's well known that worldwide inflation has affected practically every economy and the market for electrical equipment and tools has not been spared. Business expenses for local power provider San Miguel Power Association have risen and are likely to remain higher than pre-pandemic levels. Additionally, SMPA is anticipating a cost hike of more than 6% for its wholesale power, which accounts for approximately 52% of the nonprofit cooperative's overall expenses. With these factors in mind, the SMPA staff is planning to propose a $2 increase to its access charge. Currently, the single-phase access charge that most residential members pay each month stands at $23 per month. If approved, the increase would bring the fixed charge, which is intended to cover fixed costs of grid maintenance and system hardening, to a total of $25 per month, still one of the lowest grid access fees in the region. This $2 increase will not cover the projected increase in our wholesale power costs, said SMPA Chief Executive Officer Brad Zaparski. However, though, tightening of our belt and successful long-term financial planning, we will be able to cover our expenses while giving our members room to adjust to market conditions. Several times over the past four years, the SMPA Board of Directors has taken advantage of opportunities to defer revenue. This practice, a rate stabilization tool, will make up for any losses SMPA may realize next year. A temporary measure, the deferred revenue mechanism will help SMPA bridge a gap between the current rate environment and a yet undefined future state. Now, a number of rulings to affect the future relationship between SMPA and its current wholesale power provider, Tri-State Generation and Transmission, Tri-State, are under deliberation at the Federal Agency Regulatory Commission. While questions remain about the future of our power supply, Zaporsky said, one truth is becoming more and more evident. The timing of electrical power use will be one of our most powerful money-saving tools as we move forward. To help draw member attention to this fact, SMPA has launched an information campaign called Timing Matters. Part of the movement can be read on a power bill. The hours of 4 to 9 p.m. have been identified as the system peak. New line items on the bill indicate on-peak and off-peak power use, and members can now see when their account used the most energy within the billing period. This information, combined with the announced metric that on-peak power costs the cooperative four times as much as power used at other times, can help raise awareness of the challenges and of the opportunity that it presents. The challenges we face are real, Zaporsky said. However, our democratically elected board of directors has been and will continue to be vigilant and responsive. The SMPA Board of Directors will consider the proposed access charge increase at their October board meeting on Tuesday, October 24th at 9 a.m. The meeting will be held virtually and in the boardroom at 170 West 10th Avenue in Nucla. Members are invited to attend in person or as a Zoom participant to provide comment at the beginning of the meeting before the board considers the proposal. Members may also submit written comments to rates at smpa.com prior to the October meeting. Dark Skies in the News, WEDSA Group Anticipates Annual Eclipse, by Reagan Tuttle, Editor. The West End Dark Sky Association announced an annular solar eclipse visible on Saturday, October 14th, around noon in the local area. 
According to NASA, the eclipse will cross North, Central, and South America and be visible in parts of the U.S., Mexico, and many countries in the continents below. An annular solar eclipse happens when the moon passes between the sun and the earth while it is at its farthest point from the earth, NASA representatives said online. Because the moon is farther away from earth, it appears smaller than the sun and does not completely cover the sun. Basically, the moon is almost entirely blocking the sun, except for the outer edge, said Bree Butler, WEDSA volunteer. Natarita and Nucla are not in the path of totality for the October 14th eclipse. Places like Lake Powell and the Four Corners are in the path. Viewers must protect their eyes. Be sure to have special eclipse sunglasses for viewing, said Deb Stuber of WEDSA. Never look at the sun without the proper eye protection. You could cause permanent damage to your eyes. Stuber said WEDSA has ordered some special eclipse sunglasses. Shipping on those has been delayed, but they should arrive in time. They will be available for $2 a pair at the Visitor Center in Natarita and also at the Wild Gals Market in Natarita. They will also be useful for another eclipse coming up in April of 2024, Stuber said. Additionally, Ace Hardware of both Norwood and Telluride will have eclipse glasses for sale too. Those will be similarly priced at just a few dollars a pair. NASA said what people can see during the eclipse depends on weather and also a viewer's location. Even with cloud cover, though, the eerie daytime darkness of the eclipse could still be noticeable. NASA said that as the moon passes in front of the sun, it will produce a partial eclipse first. The moon will slowly block more and more of the sun's light, making the sun appear as a smaller and smaller crescent before it forms a C-shape. This phase is also known as first contact, the NASA website says. About an hour and 20 minutes after the partial eclipse phase begins, the moon will pass completely in front of the sun, leaving a ring of sun visible from behind the moon. The ring period is called the annularity, or second contact, and lasts between one and five minutes for most viewing locations. While the eclipse takes place, the sky will grow dimmer, though not as dark as it would during a total solar eclipse. Still, NASA said some animals may begin to behave as if night is falling, and the air could begin to cool off during that time. Stuber said WEDSA is not going to have a formal telescope gathering for this eclipse, as board members are going other places to view the eclipse in more totality. She said next year WEDSA will plan something for the full solar eclipse in April. And WEDSA is celebrating the 2024 moon calendars the board is distributing. Those calendars have arrived, and they do show when all of the solar and lunar eclipses happen. They are also handy for planning trips and events and knowing when the night sky is darkest for stargazing, Stuber said. They are for sale in our display at the Natarita Visitor Center, Wild Gals, and possibly other places around the area. Stuber asks all to enjoy the eclipse, the beauty of fall, and the clear night skies. Flu Shots, High School Volleyball, Festival Success, More by Reagan Tuttle, Editor. Chris Daniels on the board of the Basin Clinic in Natarita said the community should plan for another drive-by shooting. Daniels is not referring to guns, but needles. And in a good way, Daniels wants all to know that the Basin Clinic is giving away flu shots again this fall. It's that time of year again, folks, she said over the weekend. The Basin Clinic is offering free flu shots on Wednesday, October 18th between 3 and 7 p.m., those in the West End can get the flu shot to protect themselves against the virus and without even having to go inside. Recipients of the vaccine are welcome to fill out the necessary forms while sitting in the comfort of their car that afternoon, evening, and receive the shots from there. They should simply follow the volunteers who will be directing the flow. For those of a certain age, there are some high-dose flu shots available. Additionally, some goodies will be distributed too. 
For any questions about the drive through flu shot service, the public may call the Basin Clinic at 970-865-2665. In other community news, the Nucla High School volleyball team continues with regular season play. The girls have a tournament on October 28th, which will mark the end of the regular season. Head coach for the Mustangs, Debbie Waitulka, said the team will know more after that date. Then we will see what the final rankings are to know if we make it to regionals or not, Waitulka told the San Miguel Basin Forum over the weekend. The state only takes the top 24 teams to regionals. Right now, the Mustangs are sitting at 44th. Hundreds of people flocked to Nucla Town Park over the weekend for the 7th Annual Heritage Festival. The fall festival served a record amount of community cider using the old crank press from the apples donated to the event. Melanie Eggers and Jen Nelson, co-founders of the Apple Corps project that produces the festival, said they pressed 33 bushels of apples. That's 99 gallons of cider. Yes, that's the most we've served, Eggers said on Sunday. The cider was pressed but not fermented, which means it was not true cider and did not contain alcohol. At the same time, Montrose County held the tire drop for the public on October 7th up at the airport in the road and bridge building area. Representatives were taking old tires for recycling at no charge to the public. Recyclers were welcome to drop five tires per load. West End Road and Bridge staff worked all morning. The guys said they had orders to take 470 tires to the stop by noon, whichever came first. By 11 a.m., they'd received approximately 270 tires, with traffic still entering the premises to drop more. Katie Jurgensen, communications director of Montrose County, said in total there were 472 tires dropped in Nucla and 1,229 in the east end of the county. We hit the cap at both, Jurgensen said. All right, page two, Ag Talk, Be on the Lookout by Kieran Bray. As I mentioned in my last month's column, the agricultural industry plays a vital role in our state's economy, food production, and more. Because of this, I was having a hard time deciding what I wanted to write about this month. There are just too many things in the agricultural industry that should be talked about and better explained. This last summer, I got the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. for an FFA leadership conference, and while I was there, I was given the opportunity to meet with one of our Colorado State representatives, Lauren Bobert. Unfortunately, when I went to visit, she was in a session, so instead of meeting with Bobert, I got to meet with one of her staff members. During our meeting, I asked different questions about what Bobert has planned for the different challenges Colorado agriculture is and might be facing in the future. Overall, I got to learn a lot, and I had a great time. At the end of the meeting, she told me to be on the lookout for any upcoming bills that might go to the legislature. That got me thinking. There isn't a better way to start writing than to introduce you to some of the bills that you might see in this year's legislature. The Colorado Farm Bureau has recently come out with a list of bills you should be on the lookout for in the upcoming legislature this year. Some of the categories these bills are under will include animal welfare, labor, pesticides, private property rights, water, and taxes. Most of what I just listed are things that have been on the ballot before and are now coming back with modifications. Colorado has seen many attempts to change animal husbandry standards in the past, and it is not going away anytime soon. Having said that, one of the things you should be on the lookout for this year is something called Proposition 12. Much like Proposition 16, Proposition 12 imposes restrictions on how ranchers can handle their livestock. However, Proposition 12 is a little bit more specific in the fact that it talks mostly about pigs, chickens, and cows. These restrictions will pose a huge burden on farm and ranch families that grow food for the world. Another big issue that Colorado is seeing is public access to rivers through private property through corner crossing. Corner crossing is defined as 
When a person steps from one parcel of public land to another at a four corners point where private and public land meet, these bills will mandate private landowners to allow the public to travel over privately owned property. In short, this bill allows the public to cross over into private property to access another section of public land. This has the potential to cause a lot of issues. For example, coming from a family with a hunting business, I can see potential trespassers saying that they are crossing to get to public land on the other side. That will affect our hunting business and the families that we provide hunts for. And hunting is not the only thing this will affect, but it is one of the biggest ones on this side of the state. Finally, I want to mention the child labor bills you have a potential to see. According to Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, no minor under the age of 16 is permitted employment between the hours of 9.30 p.m. and 5 a.m. unless the next day is not a school day. Minors may not work more than 40 hours per week or 8 hours in any 24-hour period unless there is a business emergency. If you look at this as a farmer or rancher, your kids would never be able to help with the family business at all. Parents would be all by themselves. This bill is trying to limit what children are allowed to help with on the ranch. Most family farms and ranches rely on their children to help run the business. Now, for my favorite section History from the Rimrocker Historical Society Walter and Myrtle Cooper Settled in Natarita, Part 4, by Jane Thompson, Rimrocker Historical Society. The town of Nucla developed about five miles from Natarita. It eventually served many of the people from the west end of the county, although the Coopers and many others still needed to take their yearly trip to Montrose, the county seat, in order to lay in a supply of staples. This trip was made with a team of horses and a farm wagon over Highway 90, County Road 90, a distance of about 55 miles. It took four days to make the trip and do their trading. The first night they camped at Iron Springs on top of the Uncompagre Plateau. They went on to Montrose the next day and did part of their trading, finishing up the following morning and traveled back to Iron Springs for the overnight stay. The roads were hardly more than cow trails, and as they journeyed along over the deep ruts, it was often difficult to stay in the seat. But for all that, it was a yearly adventure which afforded the participants a great deal of pleasure. A postmaster was needed for the Natarita area, so Myrtle and Walter built a room on the front of their house, and the post office was established in it. At that time, there was no such requirements as a civil service examination for the postmaster, especially for fourth class post offices. It usually went to whomever would take it. Walter built a good sized barn with stalls for freighters' teams and a large hayloft above. Freighters and cowboys often slept in the loft on the hay where there was not room in the house. The closest doctor lived about 75 miles away at Telluride and traveled only by horse and buggy, so usually home remedies were used. Eventually, a doctor moved to Norwood, only 22 miles away, but this was a half day trip in good weather. Most babies were delivered only with the help of midwives. When someone died, the neighbors rallied around to dig the grave and build a coffin with plain white pine boards. The neighbor woman lined it with whatever cloth was available. There was no such thing as a mortician in the area, and bodies were not embalmed. Floral offerings were brought from local gardens, but the sympathy from neighbors, no doubt, meant more than the floral offerings. Walter had an excellent bass voice and Myrtle a fair soprano, so they were often asked to sing at funerals. Walter once remarked that he had sung at every funeral in the valley. Around 1910, Blake and Payson, who owned the ranch adjoining Myrtle and Walters, laid out a town site on a small area of land about half a mile away from the Cooper's house. The post office was moved to this site, and other people had the job for a few years. Myrtle decided she would like to have it again when the postmaster's job became available. By this time, a number of changes had taken place. 
It was necessary to take an examination for the job, so Myrtle took it and was awarded the position. Instead of the old wagons and teams, cars and trucks had come into use, but the roads were still a big problem. When the roads were dry, these vehicles went through easily. When the roads were muddy, their wheels became buried. With the help of chains and some pushing, they eventually went through. The mail stage, no longer their traditional stagecoach, hauled quite a few passengers, and this was the only means many of them had for going to other towns. Men passengers were often asked to push. The Cooper's daughter, Flora, when she became old enough, helped in the post office, but after graduating from high school in 1919, got married and soon left the area. Myrtle gave up the post office, and they made their living mostly on the farm. To be continued. And there you have it, folks. This is Volume 74, Issue Number 19 of the San Miguel Basin Forum, bringing you all the news from the West End of Colorado for the week of October 11th, 2023. My name's Brock Benson. We'll see you next week.